say, Dave, do you know that One Direction had the number one stadium tour this year? No. Do you know that YouTube won't make the same licensing deal with the indie labels that it does with the majors? They won't. Do you know that Vivo only airs videos from Sony and Universal and does not censor any material? Hey, Steve, how do you know all this stuff? Because last semester I tuned into Music Biz 101 and more on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. on WPSC Brave New Radio and heard industry guests talk about all of this stuff. That's that cool show from the Music and Entertainment Industry Management Department on campus that you can call in or tweet questions about the Music Biz, right? It's the only one in the country, and it's a Stitcher Radio podcast as well. Wow, so the show airs live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. I bet they have great guests lined up. I'd like to learn more about touring using social media and DIY stuff. Just coincidentally, the semester show will include tour manager Dave Laurie, social media whiz Sean Rosenberg, and from Clifton, Sean and Rachel from Blue Raven Entertainment. When's that show on again? Wednesday nights, 8 p.m., live only on 88.7 WPSC, Brave New Radio, and, and it's, it's free! free. <laughs> I want you Every I want week. you to listen to music Every biz 101 and yes, because this is great rock and ah, roll music for our listeners, it Steven. Would be, so why don't we listen to it without you pruning? Because I want you so bad, it's driving me ah. mad. It's driving me mad. Welcome to Music Biz 101 and more. The only terrestrial free advice music and entertainment biz talk show and podcast in all of the Americas. We hope. We hope. We are pretty sure. I am your professor, David Kirk Philp. Please, at any point, you may call me David Kirk Philp. And I'm here with today... His professor, Professor Marconi. Professor Dr. Stephen... <laughs> What's your middle name, by the way? Frank. Stephen F. Is it Frank or was it with a PH and a silent H? No, it's with a F. With a, with a complete F. Yes. Okay, because I'm Philp, but it has a PH. Get to the point. And you have a PE, as in PED. That's the kind of doctor that you are. Dr. Marconi. Sure. Of William Patterson, the university. And by the way, we are listening to Brave New Radio, 88.7 on your FM dial. You can also stream us somewhere. And also, we uh, are taking your tweets at any moment at MusicBiz101WP. Check out our website, MusicBiz101WP.com. You can listen to this podcast on Stitcher Radio. Go to Stitcher with two T's.com. And our producer today is the wonderful, illustrious, and very tall Philip Gorakhovsky. Philip Gorakhovsky. Philip Gorakhovsky. We also have a wonderful student guest host today. Her name is Elisa Simetis. Elisa Simetis. Elisa Simetis. Say something. And make sure you clap for yourself. Come on. So there we go. Elisa. Hello. Yes, it's good to have you. It was very difficult to make you clap. We we introduced Philip Gorakhovsky. We always clap for Philip Gorakhovsky. And uh, it was very difficult. Do you not like Philip Gorakhovsky? No, I don't know him. So okay, Philip, have you met Elisa? That's uh, uh, Philip and Elisa. I've just met, and this nice is uh, to meet you. really it's yeah. nice to meet you as well. And um, Elisa, why are you here today? I'm here because Dr. Marconi asked me to. And and to be. What are you studying in school? I'm studying music management as a minor. Yes, yeah. and you are. She was started out as a major, and then switched, and realized you didn't want to be a performer. Yes. So you went over to the business school. Yep. On and Valley. minoring in music. Management. Majoring Excellent. in marketing, yep. And when are you going to graduate? Probably in a year, a year and a half. We'll see. All right. 
We didn't mention that this is on the this radio station WPSC is on the campus of William Patterson the University in the Wayne Township of New Jersey. And Dr. Marconi, we do have a guest, and we should introduce the guest, and then we can talk about all the stuff that we have coming up. Please who do. Our, who is our guest? You, you, you please do. Well, our guest, as I've been uh, saying for the last few weeks, and the week has come now, and we are very fortunate to have Dave Laurie in, who has a very, very, very uh, varied background in the music business, and he is actually one of my go-to guys. When I have a question about what's going on and so on, I usually give Dave a call. So I think you're going to be very entertained and informed tonight. And Dave wants to say hello. Hello. Oh. That was very kind. Actually, Dave is here in the studio, too. I can pinch him and he will scream. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'd like to apologize, Dave. I just clapped for you. Elisa clapped a little. Steve and Philip did not clap for I was you. Still it's talking. a tough crowd. <laughs> it's a tough crowd. <laughs> Marconi, I was still talking. Uh, so um, why don't we begin to talk about just what we have coming up. Yes. And then we will definitely get to Dave Laurie because he's we're here because of him. And we have some great student tweets as well. And we did mention that Good. our Twitter does awesome. at MusicBiz101WP. Um, let's talk about Friday. Well, you talk about Friday. This Friday, the day after Thursday, is College Radio Day. Yes. Which is the fourth College Radio Day, World College Radio Day, taking place. It originated here at WPSC, Brave New Radio, 88.7. And uh, we're going to have a show. We're going to do a special show Friday at 5 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. It will also be recorded and become a podcast for all of our friends Mm -hmm. on Stitcher.com. But we're going to have Dr. Rob Quick, who runs... WPSC, he's going to be our guest, and we're going to have a great, great, great call-in. Is and who would that be? His name is Chris Henderson, and he is the guitarist ah, for Three Doors Down. That's great. At 515. How did you arrange that? We know people. We know people, okay. and we pay people. Well, we're big, too. Yeah. Well, we're, it's, uh, we're one of the top-ranked music business programs in the country, yes. aren't we? Yes, according to Billboard magazine, we are. And we're very proud of that. Yes. Because of shows like this. It got us, and we uh, we were number nine, weren't we? Well, it was alphabetical order. Everyone was number one. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. Okay, so that's uh, College Rate. Next week on our show, we have Frank Robin, who is the guitar tech for the band Mo, and mm-hmm. also Hall & Oates. Dave Laurie, have you ever heard of Hall & Oates? I have. I bet, Actually, uh, my wife worked with them for many years. Really? What did your wife do with Hall & Oates? She was uh, the head of promotion for Sony Europe, and so when acts would go over, be it Mariah Carey or... Uh, Michael Jackson or Billy Joel or Michael Bolton, she'd fly on private jets with him, and she had the life. Yeah. Wow. That, that's great. We should have had Dave's wife on. Why is Dave with us? <laughs> Next week. <laughs> Next week. You're not we- the, the the first one that said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, then after that, Howard Freeman, who runs the Quick Check Balloon Festival, New Jersey Balloon Festival. I think that's how it's pronounced. But the Balloon Festival takes place every July in Reddington, New Jersey. Howard Freeman is going to be here. He also runs the Rock Ribs and Ridges Festival. Yes. Major, major promoter. He he uh, he books bands. He books bands. He Rick Springfield, Meatloaf, Joan Jett played mm-hmm. this year at the Ballooning that's Festival, right. and he books these bands and he. Gets hundreds of thousands of people to go. And then in uh, later on, we have Ron Beanstalk, entertainment lawyer Ron Beanstalk. Is Very awesome. good attorney. Yes, who uh, committed the other day. So we have some great, great guests coming up. We're going to talk about some great, great things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Stephen, why don't you take over and speak with Dave Laurie and let us just be flies on the wall? Sure. Well, Dave and I have been friends for 
Probably since the early 90s, I would think. When yeah, I, well, we're both older than dirt. So. That's right. And I first, <laughs> I first met you over at Brand X, and uh, actually your mentor was a friend of mine, the uh, late um, Dick Broderick, who had a wonderful career at RCA Records. And um, I remember that day that uh, he said, come here, I wanted to introduce you to one of my students here who's actually could be teaching these classes as well as I am. And uh, I think that's how we just uh, met. So why don't you just give us a background of maybe right up to that point, what you had been doing. You mean going to college? Even before that. Yeah, well, I grew up in a music family. My uh, mother was a music teacher. So I'd come home from school and there'd be people playing piano or violin, et cetera. And about, uh, I guess I was five, uh, going into kindergarten. And where were you? I uh, was living in uh, Leavenworth, Kansas. You know, wow. you're either in the military or in prison. I was neither. <laughs> yes, but, um, it's great on your passport. I got to tell you when you come <laughs> through. Uh, but no, uh, I, I got a snare drum when I was five years old. I played a little piano for about two, three years. I I wish I'd have kept with it, but I thought it was too sissy. And uh, I was playing a full drum set and uh, played in bands from the age of about oh, I'd say probably about ten. And uh, just continued. I, I didn't realize that's what I wanted to do music-wise, but anybody that's an artist, it's in your soul. And back in those days, it wasn't about being a rock star or anything like that. It, it was about you just loved playing music. And uh, to my parents, I really appreciate them giving me the time. There were days I'd be practicing six hours a day in mm. the house. In fact, when I moved out when I was 18, the drywall studs were coming out of the hallway because of the double kick and playing all the heavy metal <laughs> music. But uh, that's how I got started. And then when I left high school, I actually uh, went on tour. I was playing 20, 30 days a month, uh, every day. And uh, it was 1984 I made the decision that I, you know, I knew I wanted to make, I, I was managing the bands too. Mm-hmm. And at that point, our band was getting so big, I had the band sat me down and said, make a decision, either be our drummer or our manager. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a little bit of trivia that nobody knows, very few. The drummer I got to replace me, who was my competitor along the Eastern Seaboard, is a drummer by the name of Scott Travis, which is Judas Priest drummer. Mm-hmm. So uh, Scott, he was more metal-oriented. I was more versatile. I'd, I'd play in a Top 40 band or the Charlotte Symphony or heavy metal, mm-hmm. and that's when I made the move to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I think 84 was, I think New York University was the only music business program, or if it was, it was one of a few. Well, we had one in Syracuse, too. Right, exactly. Right. Um, and that's when I made the move up there, met Dick Broderick. He said, give me two years of your life, because uh, I was 24 at the time, so I wasn't going to college to go to the keg parties. I was there to actually learn and internships and stuff like that. And he actually, I helped him get the program up and running, and uh, was vice president of the program, actually, for the two and a half years I was there. And uh, I'll never forget, he, I was managing a band that uh, was, it was a country artist, Nick Seeger, Pete Seeger's nephew, and he was big internationally, and I was touring Russia and across Europe, and we had two country singles on the charts here in America. Mm. And I'll never forget, I was exhausted. I was running Colony Records seven days a week, until the 2 o'clock in the morning. I was also doing the internship for the Prince Purple Ranger at Howard Bloom, which was a legendary PR company. Yes. The publicist left, and Prince's management said, we want Dave to stay as a publicist. I'd been working on it for about a year, but they wouldn't pay me. I was an intern. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't have enough experience. So I ran six months of the Prince Purple Rain Tour, which was the biggest tour of that, that year. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Professor Broderick pulled me into his office. He said, look, you look terrible. You're not sleeping. You got two singles on the charts. You got everything going for you. The school can't teach you anymore. And I made him put him on the board of my company. And so he was with me up until his death. Uh, mm-hmm. He was my go, go-to guy, like you said. Right. And uh, I don't know if you knew this about Richard Broderick, uh, about the uh, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he ever told you the story, but Rice and Weber, who are renowned cats, all the big musicals they've done, before they were anybody, they walked in and plunked out the chorus of Jesus Christ Superstar with a concept. Dick Broderick wrote the check authorized the money for them to go record this album. Mm. It was a big fiasco as far as the Catholic Church was upset, etc. He actually took the listening party into a Catholic church. And the new president of the label came in and said, we're going to scratch this project. He backdated a memo showing there was a half a million records already in the warehouse, which they hadn't even begun printing them. So they went with it. And God. the rest is history. And God. Rice and Weber owe their career to Broadway. Right. Thinking outside the box, too. Well, he taught me that, too. He said, look at the world. Now, we're talking 1984. He said, "If you can be big in France and make a lot of money. Not everybody needs to be Madonna. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. Mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of people don't think about. And when we teach in our classes, we try and remind people that the world is bigger than the United States. Oh, absolutely. And you're a testament to that. Um, I actually had more success outside the United States. I, I could mention a list of probably 12 artists that I managed that nobody would have heard of, but they were big internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, I preferred it. It was Pittsburgh or Paris. It's a lifestyle thing. I was flying around the world for 20, 25 years on somebody else's dime and enjoying it. Sure. Now, when you were um, right at NYU, weren't you also, um, were you booking clubs or doing some i ran the bottom line theater i was a stage manager for that yeah and something on 57th you were doing too i think it's not there anymore oh that was la barbat yeah yeah that was that was a little bit after um i was a consultant and coming out of college obviously you're poor so i worked out a deal for them that i got free food and alcohol and it was a really happening place at the time (laughs) it was a block from my house and i did that for three years but what it was, it's an old recording studio. So yes. part of what I told them was to find the gold records of the artists that recorded there. And then what was unique about it, I said, don't just bring in talent to perform. So I came up with a concept of getting uh, side players, like with David Bowie or whoever wasn't on tour, to come up and be a house band. So it was revolving big names. Most people wouldn't recognize them, right. but they would do cover songs. Right. So it was never about the band. It was about the atmosphere. Right. So it was constantly bringing in the cool, hip people. Right. It yeah, was that a, was quite a bar. It's a cave, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. It, it, well, yeah. It was, supposedly. Yeah, well, they made it look that way. Yeah. It was right. a La Barbat is what it was called. I was in there. Wow, that's good memory. <laughs> Did I take you there one night or something? No, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I just remember that there was a connection of you and that club on 57th, right. but I didn't remember the name of the, the club. Okay, so then after that, where did you uh, go? You left NYU. I, I left NYU. I was managing Nick Seeger. And um, I started being the, this is where I started earning my reputation as a cleaner. Um, meaning it's all messed up, come in and fix it. So I started having to go out with all the metal bands, Megadeth, Dio, Sabotage. 
um, because they were all trouble. Drugs were rampant. Uh, heavy metal was extreme at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was a tour manager up until 89 doing those bands. And that's when I got the call from Johnny Padell, who was at William Morris at the time. And Johnny said, uh, Dickie Betts, uh, tour manager of many years, wasn't able to go out. Can you go out for two weeks with Dickie? And that's what ultimately got me the um, Allman Brothers oh, right. gig. Yeah. All right. So you were manager or tour manager? At the I was a tour manager in 89. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg's management left at the he The contract was up at the end of that tour. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Greg asked me to manage him, and that's when I started managing Greg, co-managing the Allman Brothers with Danny Goldberg. Danny had Dickie, Butch, and J-Mo. I had Greg. <laughs> and it, it was a way to keep the balance because, obviously, any band that's been together 20 years, um, it's it's... You know, it's, right. it's interesting to say the least. Yeah, I it's had like op- a marriage. <laughs> I, I had opened for them in the, I guess the late, the late sixties, and actually when the band I was with, Jam Factory, broke up in the early seventies or mid seventies, the 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 band split up, and the guys that left and wanted to continue went down and lived on uh, the Allman Brothers the ranch for a while. Well, what was interesting, that was the first concert I ever went to. I was 16 years old. I was working in a music store in Omaha, Nebraska. It was across the street from the Coliseum. And the crew came in, Red Dog, um, who's the oldest roadie ever. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went backstage, and Dickie came up and just hit me as hard as he could in the shoulder and said, how you doing, long hair? And I said, you got anything against long hair? He said, no, I don't mind beating up a few now and then. (laughs) I mean, it was like, that was my introduction to the Alba Brothers. So, uh, but I got the job because, and I won't go into too much detail, kiss and tell, but Dickie got into some problems with the police on the last night. Mm-hmm. And when he got, I got him out of jail, we were in Portland. I was supposed to fly out. I had to take the bus back to Nashville. So now I'm upset. And the crew, uh, was on the bus. Dickie came up, got on the bus and I got in his face and I said, you go to the back of the bus. I don't want to hear a peep out of you until we get to Nashville. And the mm. bus cleared out, including the bus driver. Really? And they were peeking around the corner and Dickie stood up. He said, you know what? You got guts. And that's when he told me he went and made the call to Johnny Padell and said, this guy can handle the Allman Brothers. Uh, I didn't know. If I'd have known now or then what I know now, because he's a martial arts expert. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would not have said that. No, I, no, I wouldn't I, have been here. No, right? Exactly. But uh, we had had our moments, Dickie and I, because when I went to manage Greg, obviously he couldn't stand me. Um, but now, you know, it's not like we talk all the time, but when we see each other, we're friends. Mm-hmm. Could mm-hmm. I, do you mind if I interrupt one sec? Sure, Just please. going back to that. And whole... I also think Dickie's the most underrated guitar player in the history of uh, rock and roll because he was in Dwayne well, look, Shadow. And look who we, yeah, that's right. Look yeah. who we followed. You brought up the fact that you were known as the cleaner, okay, which, um, and then you just talked about his story with, with Dickie Betts, sort of. Um, can you describe that a little bit more? How did you get that reputation? Who found out about it, and how did you start getting, and what specifically were you doing without the kiss and tell, unless you want to kiss and um, tell? No, the Allman Brothers is a good example. They needed, you know, I remember Russ Vault at the Atlanta Journal, or Constitution, I think it was called. Um, he did a story on the Allman Brothers coming back, and when we went down there, to start the rehearsals. The band hadn't been together in 10 years um, for a lot of reasons, Mm -hmm. Um, like all bands do. Aerosmith goes through it, you know, you name it. Um, But they were rehearsing. We got a shopping mall, um, you know, strip mall, and we rented it out, and we soundproofed it. And there was two, all these friends coming in, hundreds of people, and they're partying. And I remember Red Dog came up to me the first day and said, you know, there's 200 200 people on the stage, and... uh, 
we filled big tins with beer and all that. And that was a problem in the past because they were losing money. And I said, well, I'm the new tour manager. You're fired. You need to be rehired or re-interviewed. And I mm-hmm. fired the whole crew. Mm-hmm. Now, then when everybody was uh, partying and we had two weeks to get a show together, we didn't even have equipment. We bought the equipment, but we didn't have road cases till the first date. So I rehired the crew and that gained their respect. And Russ DeVault said, and they hired this guy who's no nonsense. I locked the band into the rehearsal hall and kept people out. I literally locked them in the shopping mall until rehearsal was over. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't come out. People couldn't come in. And then the funny thing was, and this is a, a fact about the Allman Brothers, our first show was in Buffalo two weeks later. Um, the promoters followed me around with, with money, bags of money. It was like $200,000. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, I'll get to it in a minute. I'm trying to put the first show on well, I brought up the story that the promoter was really a pain in the ass, and oh, I shouldn't have probably said that, but um, Dickie and the ba- Greg and the band were laughing, and he said, you don't know the history about Buffalo, do you? And I said, no. He said, well, the uh, Buffalo promoter didn't pay us one time, and Twigs Linden killed the promoter. <laughs> so wow. that's why it was running around with the money. So yeah, right. um, that's one. Um, I would get calls from uh, like a female artist that was big in Germany, and she was so hard to deal with. Or she fired her accountant, her manager quit. The tour was out of control. William Morris was the agency that called me the most. I would go over. They say we need you to bring the tour home, so I would go over there, and you know, I just had to be strong-handed. Um, Sabotage was on Atlantic. Jason Flom signed him. I took him from a, a van to a Winnebago to a bus. They were on their first tour together. Um, the drummer got caught with a 14-year-old girl. Uh, we had warrants in every city, but I managed to get him up on stage and get him out of town before, you know, we got, he got busted. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you name it. I mean, it went all the way up to in 2000 and I think it was four or three. You know, I get the call to manage Courtney Love. She's out of control. Mm-hmm. And uh, M- MTB was relaunching in Japan, so I took her over there. And... Uh, you know, the, the whole point of it was they wanted to make – she was given Best Rock Award out. So that's Dave Grohl. So they obviously don't get along. Mm-hmm. It was Billy with Smashing Pumpkins was the other band. <laughs> and it was one other band, same thing. So, But she was great. And Rick Krim, I'll never forget, he said he was in a meeting. And he said, well, who's the new manager? And he says, Dave Laurie. He goes, well, he's probably got a 50-50 shot of doing this. So, But <laughs> it just seemed to kind of happen. I didn't really like it at first. You know, it was always like, why can't I get Whitney Houston and ship 5 million records? I used to be the guy that we can't get on radio, i.e. Jeff Buckley. And, you know, he'll tour them, he'll get them big somewhere, and, you know, we'll make money. So looking back now, I like it. But, you know, so it just kind of developed naturally. So now you're you're managing the Alma Brothers, right? And uh, you meet Danny Goldberg then, or he? Had- well, I met Danny uh, when I was a tour manager, mm-hmm. and Danny it was great learning experience because Danny, who later went on as president of Atlantic and Mercury Records, and obviously I worked with him with Artemis. Um, he, I could watch him go through the label and work the label, so it was like college all over again. Mm-hmm. And I took care of like the touring, the merchandising. Um, the studio stuff, those things. Danny did all the marketing, the PR, the development. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the band came, we brought them back, and they're only going to sell X amount of records, and it's really the concert revenue. So they ended up firing Danny, uh, and the tour manager I hired, actually to this day, Bert Holman is still the manager. He's a great guy, and right. I give him credit because 
there's not a lot of managers in the uh, Allman Brothers world. Yeah, right. So then did that take you then to Mercury Records? or No, I was actually doing a lot of work with uh, Nairis the Grammys, uh, doing unsigned band contests, uh, the Hero Award Dinner. Um, I managed some bands that, that were popping a little bit. I managed Sophie Zomani, Grammy winner in Sweden, Cattell Kennick, Grammy winner in Ireland. And I picked up uh, this little artist uh, by the name of Jeff Buckley. It mm-hmm. wasn't until Jeff passed away that um, Danny Goldberg called me because he managed Kurt Cobain. And he called me the, immediately. I was in Ireland when, it, when he disappeared in the Mississippi River. And mm-hmm. he said, look, I'm here for you. How's, where's your family? He, every day he called me mm-hmm. just to make sure I was okay. And then if you look at the press when Jeff died, I was never quoted. I mm-hmm. always felt a manager should be behind the artist. You don't even see a lot of photos with me with the artist. Mm-hmm. And um, I was never the egotistical. I always thought it was about the artist comes first and foremost. That was sure. kind of like my mantra. So Danny after about two weeks, said, look, I, I have something I'd like to talk to you about, and it was to run Mercury International because mm-hmm. of my international background. actually knew more about international than I did domestically, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I wasn't connected at radio, which really you had to have in America, um, but I was very connected in all areas of the business internationally. And ironically, Danny told me one day I'm going to get that call because we're part of a... Um, a club that you don't want to be part of, and that's when your rock star artist dies young. Mm. And about two years after that, I don't know, one, two in the morning, I got the call. It was um, NXS's lead singer's manager after uh, Michael Chug down in Australia said, called Dave Laurie, Tracy, and I can't remember her last name, mm-hmm. um, called me up and said, you know, Michael hung himself. Mm. And it, what was mm. funny with Buckley you know, they were trying to compare it with him and his dad, which we always try yeah. to compare him away from his dad. Right. We didn't even have his dad in his bio. And I taught him when people asked an interview to say, I only met him two months before he died. I've got numbers of people if you want to know about my dad. And that would end the talk about Tim Buckley. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I told, called several media publications, particularly international. I said, don't run anything about Jeff because they were running about he died of drug overdose. They wanted to stir it up. I said, I'll give you the full truth after I do the autopsy. Turned out, he wasn't, no drugs were in his body, yeah, half right. a can of beer. So when Michael Hutchins' manager was talking about how she was going to um, tell the story to the press, I told her, it's going to get out. So you got to tell the truth. And so that's when they came out and they told mm-hmm, the truth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I'm sure she got a call one day. Right. So now at Mercury, that's uh, when you worked with Shania Twain? Yeah, Shania, I had this brainstormed to make Shania a pop star. And everybody said I was smoking crack, except for David Munns, who ran Worldwide Polygram. So we flew over Germany. And this was before Mutt? No, Mutt, they were married. They were Mutt, married. Yeah, so, Mutt actually okay. worked on the record. Okay. Um, so the whole album in America, her in a red pants suit, I mean, Shania looks good in a brown paper bag, but it was terrible, um, the imaging on her. So I sat down with her, I'll never forget, Mall of America, the day her record came out in America, and she came up behind me and put her hands on me and said, and whispered in my ear, are you the guy that's going to make me a worldwide star? And I looked up, I swear I melted. That woman is <laughs> gorgeous. Um, great talent, too. Yeah. So I redid the photo shoots, fired her hairdresser, her makeup artist. We did Still the One, that video. And we launched that internationally. She actually broke pop internationally before she broke here. That's when David Leach 
came to me, the GM at the time at Mercury, and said, let me have your tools. Because internationally, you have better tools than you do domestically. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that is. But What do you mean by tools specifically? Uh, like we do electronic press kits, which they don't. Um, on everything we did on Shania, from our bio to anything, we took country out. So if it was country st BMI country star of the year or songwriter of the year, we took country out of it. Um, in the U, because the only countries that sell country are Canada, UK, Ireland, Holland, and Australia, and that's it. And those are only minimal numbers, except for Canada. Um, and Australia is pretty good too. So we actually remixed the record. We didn't. Here's a conversation sitting down with Mutt Lang and telling me he couldn't mix the record. Yeah, that's a, um, like to be a fly in the wall. Well, that? let's just say David Munns made a joke every time I went into the uh, meeting. It wasn't Landau. Landau just said, keep going. But with Barbara Carr, I'd come out bloodied. <laughs> because um, what, what would happen is, like the photo shoot, you know, I, they obviously weren't doing what they needed to do for international. And uh, so. You know, we we had a lot of work to do, and uh, it. Uh, but you know, we pulled down the pedal steel. We raised keyboards. Um, Mutt wanted kept doing dance mixes for the UK. You know, we got the hot kid in the UK to do dance mixes, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. things like that. But no, those weren't pleasant conversations, and <laughs> you know, what, what I, like I wasn't to... always politically correct in my career. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I think back, uh, I think probably it was you, but I was, I saw her at PNC. Uh, one summer, right around then, uh, and what what I was um, very impressed with was that there was sort of like all the homework was done when she got there. In other words, there was a, I think there was a high school cheerleader or marching band, something local, mm -hmm. and then you had the local contest for the Shania Twain. The girl came up and sang. Uh, there was a certain amount of money went to the food bank of. New Jersey and so on. I mean, every, right. everything you could possibly think to make her be loved by the audience, which was primarily country. There. Well, I think you got to give John Landau credit on that. You know, he manages Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, so, I mean, John, you know, I didn't have much interaction with John. John was more ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. I was more in the game right at that moment. Mm -hmm. So I dealt more with Barbara Carr. But um, he just would come and give me pep talks when I'd see him at shows and stuff like that and say, kid, just keep going. Don't worry about what they're saying. But... I'll never forget Germany and the UK presidents saying, you're smoking crack when I said we're breaking Shania Pop. Uh -huh. And uh, it was funny when she won the Brit Award over there. And I was over there for the Brit Awards, and the guy was telling me how many records he sold. I said, well, a lot of people are smoking crack, huh? They <laughs> <laughs> oh. said that to him. Well, we have to uh, take a quick break. Okay. Um, and, but when we come back, we're going to talk about more of Dave Laurie and his storied career. We're going to get into some other uh, questions, including your tweets. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more on WPSC Brave New Radio 88.7 on the FM dial. Hey, Dr. Steve Marconi, did you know about our Music Biz 101 and More theme song contest? I did and do, but only because I co-host the show. It probably wouldn't be good for you not to know. We're off the topic. Here's the contest that's open to every listener in America. Not Russia? No, I'm mad at them. It's simple. Submit an original tune to be used as the theme song for Music Biz 101 and More. A panel of judges is standing by ready to pick the winner. Any style of music, right? Right. Vocal, instrumental, it can be funny or serious. Our Blue Ribbon panel is looking for something that stands out. One of those old love songs in your sock drawer won't win. 
because that song probably sucks. Right, Steve? Funny. All entries are due by November 5th. And the winner will be announced on our show December 10th. What does the winner get? The winning song will be played at the beginning and end of the show and broadcast live on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. here on WPSC. Plus, you'll get verbal credit in each show and don't forget the podcast. The show is mobile on Stitcher Radio, so if you win, you can have your parents hear the theme song from their phones and then listen to us interview the best of the best of the music and entertainment industry. This is how Justin Bieber got his start. No. This is how Lady Gaga got her start. No. This is how Paramore got their start. No. But it might be the start of your career. Tweet us for details at MusicBiz101WP or go to our contest page, MusicBiz101WP.com backslash theme song contest. Do it now. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. Mm. That's right. Mm. You are listening to Music Biz 101 and more on WPSC FM. I'm still looking for a co-host. That is our next contest, but you probably just heard the current contest that we have going on. It is how's the, that going? It is actually going extremely well. Uh-huh. Music Biz 101 and more theme song contest. And I must say that I have purposely not listened to any of the... Uh, entries, yeah. Right. And the entries are actually no lie. This is not uh, any sort of, of blowing up mm-hmm. falsely. Uh, we're actually getting quite a bit of entries. And show me, somebody showed me yesterday his entry. He hasn't recorded it yet, but he writ, wrote out the music. Wow. And he showed that to me. A few other people Good. told me yesterday that uh, they're working on their entries. And again, if they win, the winner gets... The winner gets uh, a number of things. The most important thing is they get their... Uh, Best original song goes in uh, rotation here on WPSC-FM. Great. They also get to be on the Philip Gorakovsky show on January 14th, 2015. They also get to be on our show on January 14th, 2015. And uh, they also, obviously, they're going to be our theme song for a minimum 365 and a quarter days. Wow. Beginning and ending of every show, yeah. Yeah, So we're excited. So entries are due November 5th, so we're running low. we got about uh, one month and four days. So get those in. Hurry up. Get going. Get moving. All right. We need to continue. Where are we now with uh, our superstar guest, Dave Laurie? Well, we have just finished, I guess we're finished with Shania Twain. And moving then to another label after Mercury? Yeah, well, what was disappointing, I only was there 16 months, nine of which was a takeover when uh, Seagram's bought it. Right. Um, But we were on fire there. Danny was so hot. We had Hanson. We had Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Cake, um, you know, Bon Jovi. I mean, Kiss, we launched top five in 13 countries around the world with Psycho Circus. So everything we were touching was going great. Mm -hmm. So it was really disappointing. And... Um, you know, when they came in, they fired everybody in January of that year. And, uh, it's the first time I didn't have a job and I was getting paid. And I said, I, I, I got it wrong all these years. You know? <laughs> and now I realized why all the executives were making all the money. So that was, that was the only time I was in corporate life, by the way. Uh-huh. And, uh, I was, uh, my wife was pregnant with our second child. So I knew I had to go get a job because the child was due, uh, the day after my contract ended. <laughs> and, uh, I, did, I was going to go back into management, and then Danny called me, and he said, I want to start up what is then called Artemis Records. Mm-hmm. And so I helped him structure the whole thing. My title actually was Senior Vice President of Stuff. That's the <laughs> difference between an indie label and a corporate <laughs> label, right? Because I did the international, I did the artist development, 
I signed artists. Yeah, um, we're downtown. Too. Yeah, and I was Danny's guy that went and fixed things. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, we had uh, first we were independent label two years. First two years, Billboard independent label of the year. First time that had ever happened, probably since. Um, we had five Grammy nominations um, the first year. Uh, Who let the dogs out was. Right. Well, that's a funny story because I had them on Mercury in Japan. They were massive in Japan, but they only sold like 400 and some records in America. And when Danny signed it, I said, what are you, nuts? Because we didn't have international. And he said, Edel needs an American label. They're paying us a half a million dollars a year and an override on the record. And I said, okay, I got it. All right. So I remember listening to the record and this shows you that back then, more so than today, because the fans pick more today, but I thought, what a piece of... Mm. And Fred uh, Traub, who's the biggest sports guy right now with music and all the stadiums and the um, arenas, had just started his sports marketing company. And I was introduced to him. Fred is actually a big deal now? Oh, he's massive. Because when I was at Polygram with the New York branch, he was a a regional guy with Morgan Creek Records. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And... uh, so I'm, I'm I, happy that he's doing I, I well. gave I gave Fred the record and I said, Can you do something with this piece? Okay. Um about three, four months went by and I was watching Green Bay and New York Jets play in Green Bay and I heard it in the preseason, I heard it in the background. And then I flipped to the Giants game and I heard it in the background. So I called him up. It was I, it was a weekend. I said, Fred, you got something to tell me here? I'm hearing this song. He goes, Yeah, in fact the New York Mets and the New York Yankees love it. And I said I said, then stop. He said, what do you mean stop? I said, baseball has 162 games. NFL only has 16. So we put it off until spring and then released it that way. And the rest is history. That's just, that's one of those songs you just get out of the way. Yeah, I was just seeing if we have actually uh, someplace here on one of our, We'll go to Spotify. Umbop. <laughs> no, um, Umbop with Hanson was the same way. Mm-hmm. They, uh, Danny called me and he said, do you have any interest in it? I said, yeah, Australia's and Asia's into them. So we sent them down to Australia, and they were doing an in-store they arranged, the record company down there. 10,000 people showed up, and they had to bring in the National Guard, and I had a mom screaming on the phone, they're going to kill my kids at <laughs> 2 in the morning. And it was like the Beatles going through Asia. So we knew we had something there, and they didn't have the recording contract done yet. Wow. So Danny and all of Mercury were freaking out because, you know, they could have signed with somebody else. Wow, wow. You have a couple of uh, seconds of Who Let the Dogs Out for our listening audience. Have you ever heard of this? I have, yes. Oh, she has? Yes, okay. I have. Okay. How about Umbach from Hanson? You... No. It was before her. I got to tell you, I, I was, my wife and I were really heroes with our kids. They were probably seven, nine years old at the time, maybe eight, ten. My wife was out with the Spice Girls. I had Hanson and... Uh, who let the dogs out? Oh, God. <laughs> right, let's hear a couple of inches of it, uh, Phil. Okay. So, um, that was it? Well, that was that was who let the dogs out. Well, I mean, it was very quiet. Well, I, well, wanted to feature. I heard it very well. Oh. You, you, you. Okay. You know what? When, when, Go on. For, the, for our listeners at home, when Marconi talks, he has the headphones only on one ear. That's so this whole broadcast is a mono to you. Yes. Right. Well, <laughs> musicians learn when they're in the studio, you're one, one ear on and one ear off. Right. So you can hear yourself. It's kind of how we really? listen to you, sort of one ear on. Continue. <laughs> we, 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, could, could we ask, a, could we have uh, Elisa mention a tweet? Please. Yes. Elisa, um, this goes back to 
right here, management. Okay, which uh, might interest. What you. do you think are a few of the most common ways people fail at music management? Well, the the first and foremost uh, is they don't know the areas around the artist because that's what you actually manage more so than the artist. So when I wanted to get into management, I was a tour manager, I was a musician, I worked press, I worked retail, I worked as an agent, and I helped in putting on shows. So you can't manage a publicist if you don't know that you needed, at the time, 120-day lead time for major magazines. You can't manage a tour manager if you don't know what that job is. And by doing that, you also allow people to do their jobs. The best story I say is, I remember calling um, Jane, and I forget her last name, Cleveland Plain Dealer. She was famous in her day. I would call up Jane in Cleveland. I'd say, did the record company send you the material? And she'd say no. I knew when her deadline was. I would call the record company PR uh, division, and I would say, have you sent it? Jane Scott was her name. I said, did you send it to Jane Scott? They said, yes. I said, well, that's funny. I just talked to her, and you didn't, and her deadline's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And when you make little calls like that to various people around the world, they know you're watching them and they know you're educated. So you have to know the areas around the artist. Mm-hmm. Good answer. That was great. That was really great. Could you read this one here? Who's when it from? Tell us who it's from. Bobby Mahoney asks, when starting an indie label, how did you go about getting cap- capital in order to begin signing artists? Well, I didn't, okay? I arrived with somebody who had the capital. But when Danny left... Uh, uh, I can only relate it to Artemis Records, but when Danny left Mercury, a gentleman by the name of Pat Panzarella saw that there was a need for an independent because they'd all been bought up in the 80s, the A&Ms, the Interscopes, etc. So he went to Ray Chambers, who was currently the owner of the Nets at the time, and his son was a big music fan, and he wanted to start. So he was an investment guy or found investors, and that's how they came together with an initial investment of $50 million. For, that was for Artemis. That was for $50 Artemis, million. Yeah. And how did you get distribution? Um, and who was the distributor? Well, the distributor was R.E.D. here in America, mm-hmm. and then I made a deal um, with Rick Davis at Sony for International because I had a great relationship with them, and I knew all the territories. So I knew it would be a little less of an uphill battle getting my records released. Okay, mm-hmm. Rick, another former Polygram yeah. guy as well. Um, this is a three-part tweet. Wow. Aaron Gagliardi asks, do you think this is a viable way for someone to get attention of their works? Oh, did I... Let's start down here. Okay. <laughs> I read about Jeff Buckley starting out a solo career and gaining prominence with covers, and we see people who do this on YouTube. Do you feel Jeff Buckley's start may have helped fuel this idea, and do you think this is a viable way for someone to get attention of their works? First off, anything Jeff Buckley did, 99.9% of the artists can't do. And I'm just going to say that flat out. And what I mean by that is he did cover songs and had a bidding war. We didn't even have a demo tape. He, um, When we went to set up the band, he set up on the far left-hand side, which most people in a four-piece band would set up in the middle. He would, with Jeff, it was like jumping up. We had a saying, we, we would jump off the cliff. I would look at him because I just trusted him. It's the only artist that I just trusted whatever he wanted to do. And I, I, we had a joke halfway down as we're flying off the mountain. I'd go, do you have a parachute? And he'd go, I think so. <laughs> but, you know, very few artists, you don't go to radio, you don't cut up his songs, and you don't push the MTV angle. We turned down David Letterman, Saturday Night Live. It was all about one fan at a time. And we had a, a two, three-year plan 
where we would play a coffee house where people hung out like tastemakers. He would just walk in, plug in his guitar, and people would just go, oh, my God. Mm. And then we'd go back with the band, and then we'd go to the 200 seats, the 500 seats, and we did that all the way up to selling out, you know, multiple Olympias in Paris and Shepherd's Bush Empire in uh, London and all around the world. He was actually big around the world, but it's because he was so uh, stunning. And it was funny because after Shanae... When Jeff was in New York, he could do anything he wanted and get applause. He was that popular. I mean, there was lines going down, you know, the block. People couldn't get in. It's a tiny place, like 40 people. And uh, when we first went on the road on a solo tour, I went on with him for the first couple of weeks. And I remember people were talking through his show, you know, and he would get angry at the end of the night. And I remember um, after a Portland show, it was the third show, we started in Vancouver and he said, what's wrong with these people? And I said, you're going to learn something out here that I can't teach you. And he said, what's that? And I put in a board mix of the Allman Brothers. And I said, Dickie Betts, or it, it, and also you look at Keith Richards, they're gunslingers. They walk up on stage, they put their guitar on like they're you know a gunslinger. Mm -hmm. And they take that stage and they own it. And I said, it's called Attitude, and I can't teach it to you. So fast forward a couple years Later, he's playing the Zenith, Encore. They're, they tore his shirt off. The place is going nuts. <laughs> they push him back up on stage. I'm backstage with Emma Banks, who's now head of CAA, who was his agent at the time. Mm -hmm. He goes running up the circle staircase, comes running back down. He says, attitude? I said, now you got it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't teach it. You know, you either have it. In your yeah. class, uh, I think it was two years ago, a student asked me, how did you pick artists to sign? Mm -hmm. And I, I'd never been asked that. And I thought about it. It was never from a demo tape because you figure if they're coming to you, they don't quite have what it takes. That's why they need management. It was how they walked in the room. It was if they lit up the room mm -hmm. and their presence. Yeah. It wasn't. You got to assume they can sing or play their instrument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, two things uh, sort of around um, sort of the death of artists, because um, you mentioned it with Michael Hutchins and obviously Jeff Buckley and, and Kurt Cobain. Um, and then something else you had said about how um, after your contract ran out with Mercury, how then your wife gave birth the next day. And that was that had been the first time that you'd been working, they'd been getting paid for not working. Right. Um, one thing we talk a lot about is the sunset clause in an mm -hmm. artist's contract. Is that still uh, relevant when an artist passes away? Well, you know, every artist I ever signed I had in perpetuity, and no artist I got perpetuity. Because um, there's very few artists that have been with their manager, like Tom Petty forever, or Willie Nelson, which is a unique story in itself. Um, they, Yeah, they, they all leave. Um, and it doesn't matter what you have. They stop paying you and you start suing buckley i think it cost me eighty thousand and i got ninety thousand mm -hmm. and part of the buckley thing was there was i had all the live tapes that he gave me uh a week before he died said i only trust you don't let sony have these so there was a lot of emotional stuff you go because you're you're paid to protect your artist and when the artist is not there anymore i mean the record company had a marketing meeting before we found the body the very next morning and people were calling me from the label crying from the meeting and so that's the hardest part. So the answer to the question is, it doesn't matter what you have in the contract, the new manager is going to, you know, mm -hmm. try to break it and, and does break it. Because after a while, you just go, what the heck? Unless it's such a big artist. Yeah, and yeah. Jeff wasn't that big then, you know. Yeah, it winds up costing you too much money. Exactly.
And it's also the emotion. When you manage somebody, I mean, you care about that person. Mm-hmm. Probably more so than any other job in the industry. Okay, so after Artemis, before we get to the next tweet, we did what? Worked at JWT. The Well, no, I started up Worldwide Entertainment right. Group with some investors from Florida, uh, Jack Utzik, who was a promoter. Um, and we were buying managers and uh, promoters. Bought Michael Chug in Australia, who's the biggest promoter down there. Because I always thought Australian artists work better around the world than UK artists, because UK artists have a tendency to be more um, fad-oriented. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we brought in uh, Ted Gardner, who had Tool and Lollapalooza, and uh, Dave Fry, who had the Horde Tour, the rights to that, and he had Cheap Trick. And uh, we did a lot of radio consulting at the labels. But unfortunately, Jack Utzik had a pyramid plan or scheme. Mm-hmm. And when we went to pay for the deals we had made after the first year, um, the money wasn't there and the SEC was involved. So uh, mm-hmm. um, I left there. And then I went to JWT, the ad agency. Well, actually, I, we had some success. I signed Courtney Love. We had Robert O'Keen, Duncan Sheik. Um, Trying to think who else we might have had then. Did a lot of international consulting, uh, a lot of label consulting for radios because David Leach was my partner and he was a former GM and later president of Mercury and he was the head of promotion for years at Polygram. So uh, the, uh, the way that company ended was I got fired by Courtney Love in the Daily News mm-hmm. the, the, the weekend of the uh, blackout in New York. And I'd been trying to get fired so I could keep my contract. It was a good seven months. I made a lot of money with her and because I made the record deal and publishing deal, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I got a call Sunday morning from my assistant, Jack, and he said, my parents called and asked if I was Evil Jack in the story. <laughs> now, there were six pages of the blackout, and the seventh one was it was about my now-fired manager. She had accused her A&R guy of sexually molesting her on the Saturday. Mm-hmm. He was out of town with his wife, but... She wanted a, uh, a lemo and Virgin wouldn't send it to her. Mm-hmm. So she said that she had felt like she'd been raped, sodomized, and thrown off a high rise by me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My wife was livid. So I was driving into work on Monday, and Jack, my assistant, said, I don't think you want to come in. I said, why? He said, you got like 47 messages here. National Enquirer, you know, the TMZs of, at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. And I stopped the car on Route 3, turned around, called my wife, said, pack the kids, we're going to go to the Turks and Caicos. And I'll never forget David Munns calling me, uh, who was the head of EMI at the time. Yeah. And he said, what am I supposed to do with her now? <laughs> I said, I don't know, but I'm going to the Turks and Caicos. <laughs> so I, I packed up the office because the Jack thing was going down. I told Jack was from Canada. I said, go back home to Canada for a couple weeks, and I'll have a new place for us. Um, when I get back, and I did, I uh, JWT. I went in and uh, consulted with them on their uh, entertainment uh, properties. Yeah, that was a, an interesting. Could have been an interesting uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, marriage. It, it was. I mean, I brought in uh, little Stephen. We were doing uh, the creative department. And I worked really well together, and John Garland, Jay Walter Thompson is JWT, right, of yeah, course, the big ad international ad agency. So on his underground garage, we were putting together a animated show, kind of like the old Laugh-In show, if anybody remembers that, with the girls in the cages and little Steve would be ten and bar, and on the video screens would be the older bands and the newer bands, the cool bands. And then Paul McCartney, we came up with a campaign to work with EMI, and uh, it takes months to get Paul's trust, and I'd worked with him a couple times in his management producing events he was at, and it was going to be one for the world and it was paul because he doesn't do publicity 
he would go to uh, Ireland and play Sting. Um, uh, Bono would jump up on stage. It'd be about you know AIDS in Africa or Sting about the rainforest in London, and mm-hmm. so you had a, a real movement. And then we were going to end at the Great Wall of China. Um, so there was, and then I put together. They put together a VH1 special that had uh, icons and idols. So it was John Mayer right. and Paul Simon, yeah. and I got Randy Jackson to host that. And then they told me to go away. They're going to produce it, and I said, but nobody knows what they're doing. And so the the problem with an ad agency is they like they fought for names like Diageo and who was going to JWT to be in the press release. All they want to know is the talent. Okay, and you can do advertising around or presented by. But and then also with artists, you know, they would uh, I forget what happened with McCartney, but you know they they would upset the artist, mm-hmm. and they're not a bag of Fritos. Mm-hmm. Um, but the best one was Domino's Pizza. I was sitting in my first meeting. What I loved about the ad world versus the music world is the ad world just throws ideas out and they write down every idea. Where in music and the marketing meetings, everybody's scared to talk because they'll go, that's a stupid idea. (laughs) So there's this guy next to me. This is like my third day. And Domino's goes over everything. And then all of a sudden, this guy jumps up. He was like passed out, T-shirt on, looked like he hadn't been to sleep in three days. He goes, it's about the delivery. And they went, brilliant. So they asked me if there was any entertainment ideas. And I said, is this figure correct? You're going to five and a half million homes a week? And they said, yeah. I said, well, the heck with the pizza. It's the box. The box is going in. And mm-hmm. I said, do best rock, best pop, best urban, you know, all the different songs. And every two weeks, change it. And I got Clear Channel at the time and Live, or Live Nation and Gibson. I was going to give away tickets and everything. everybody goes to the website. So... Yeah, you're right. It could have worked out. But then I went to managing artists because the pre- new president came in, fired the entertainment division, and uh, said, go do what you've always done. So they did help me a lot when I was developing talent because I had free access to video, uh, recording studios, stuff like that. So I was able to really put printing. So I was putting together great packages for mm-hmm. the artists mm-hmm. and got four, four artists signed out of there. We have about four and a half minutes left, so we're going to do some... Uh, the Dan- I'm sorry, yes, I, no, I talked too No, much. it's not your fault. So we're going to do some rapid-fire uh, questions Go. and answers. Dan Graziano asks, do you have any advice on ways a band can increase their international recognition and appeal? One fan at a time. If you got all your fans are in Sweden, go to Sweden. Mm-hmm. Bianca asks, does touring internationally differ from touring within the U.S.? Yes, the uh, everything's national, publications, radio, word of mouth it's not it's regional in america and germany therefore you can explode faster mm. janiti asks what are some of the challenges that you face working internationally that you wouldn't have to deal with here customs knowing what people like and knowing the custom uh, the the country that you're in be yeah. nice be nice to people and don't be this snotty american mm-hmm. yeah i think he's talking about the culture of the country Correct. not customs going through customs right. at the airport no <laughs> <laughs> Mike Womack asks, what are some of the some of challenges you face when managing artists? Can you still be an effective manager and work for multiple acts? Uh, you can, but you got to understand it's what have you done for me lately. So you got to make sure you take care of them and treat them all the same, just like your children. Mm-hmm. Jeanette one. asks, what are the benefits for being signed to an independent label versus a major label? Um, it just depends. Uh, independent has fewer resources, fewer dollars. A major won't put that money into you until you're popular. So it's always best to go independent first. Nicole De Rosa asks, was there ever an international location that surprised you with their outstanding knowledge and enthusiasm for one of your artists? Australia. 
I love that country. I haven't been in a couple of years, and I used to go there two, three times a year, and I miss it. Mm. Very passionate. <laughs> you answered far too quickly for somebody like me. You got to catch hey, up. And here's one. <laughs> Katie asks, when a musician is trying to hire a manager, what questions should they ask? Um, if they're at the beginning, um, ask about what they feel about their music and their ideas for success for them as an artist. Mm-hmm. Jess asks, what's the one piece of advice you've gotten as a manager that you still follow to this day? Danny Goldberg, years ago, was thinking of dropping Greg Allman, and he said, artists are always going to give you this much, <clears throat> and once the money is above that, it's fine, you keep them. When the money drops below the, that, then you drop them. Ah. <laughs> Matt Manning says, as the, manager is, as the manager, is it difficult working with the artist label, or do the label and manager usually stand on similar ground? Uh, no, I mean, I fought all the time with Jeff Buckley, um, with the Allman Brothers, we did it. Um, all artists have screws loose. The more talented they are, the more screws that are loose. That's what makes them special and creative. So what you have to do is to develop a plan with your artist, and it's like being uh, going into Congress as the President of the United States and sell that plan to get it through. That Congress is the record company. Mm-hmm. Dr. Marconi, we need to do our recap now. Please. This has been, this has been one of the fastest 60 minutes of my life. Wow. Very what excellent, with Dave Lurie. So, um, some of the lessons we have. Uh, I wrote five, but there are about sixty different lessons that we got today, and I'll recap them real quickly. And Stevie, jump in when you want. Oh, uh, the first: don't forget international. We talked about that at the very beginning. The next is uh, we talked about what a cleaner is, what a fixer is, in terms of how Dave Lurie worked that out. And make sure you listen to this podcast so you can go back and listen again. Um, another lesson: as a manager, the artist comes first and foremost. It's about them. It is not about the manager and his or her ego. Ego. I thought that was pretty cool. A good manager understands all of the jobs surrounding his or her artist. So you understand, like you mentioned, publicity. You understood when um, things were due. You understand how the tour worked. Or with your Kansas accent, you called it a tour. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, or, or North Carolina. Or, okay. And the fifth thing was just the attitude, you know, which is something that uh, we've talked about with uh, Harvey Leeds before about how you got to go in there. You need to, you need to own that stage. And that's something that you either have or you maybe don't have. Yeah, you don't teach it. Yeah, well, that's great. We were talking about something in uh, personal management class today, and what was that question? Uh, to a manager could ask an artist, "Would would you be a fan of yourself?" Is that the one? We yeah, were that was about? a question. Yeah, and that's an interesting question. Would you be Would you be a fan of yourself? They'd all say yes. <laughs> they don't, they, they don't look why. in the mirror too often. <laughs> and we are asking you, our listener, to look in the mirror right now and say to yourself, I want to listen to more Music Biz 101 and more. Friday, so you, special yes. show. Special show Friday, October 5th, College Radio Day. Every Wednesday, a special show. Next week, Frank Robin, Guitar Tech for Mo and Hall & Oates. We want to thank you very much. Dr. Steve Marconi, thank you very much. Thank you. Elisa Sametis, thank you very much. Thank you. Philip Korchowski, thank you very much. And special, special, special guest, Dave Laurie, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. We had a great time listening to Music Biz 101 and more here on Brave New Radio 88.7. I am your professor, David Kirkfield, Philip Sane.